I walked blameless. Uh, uh, Noah. The couple, the uh, couple that had the John the Baptist. He said. Oh yeah, yeah, blameless. blameless. And it said, yeah. well, Abraham had said, yeah. "Walk before me and be blameless." Yeah. So yeah, that's right. Zechariah and that, his that's wife. Doing everything you know that the Lord, you know, is, is, is decreed to do. Yeah. To the best of your ability. Absolutely. It mean sinless. Sinless. No, it means blameless. Right. It means <laughs> acting in the right and proper manner. Okay, I don't have any prayer requests today, but I do have Silas in Kenya need $600 to settle food and books expenses. And so uh, he's made a petition on that. And if anybody wants to help, just let me know, and I'll tell you how you can get some money to him. And let's see here. Um, uh, I Linda, we're back. Oh, Linda's we're back, back is not doing well. So we want to keep Linda in prayer. Uh, her back is not doing well. Um, I told you, instead of reading that commentary, which just makes me angry with their their reform stuff, I thought I'd, um, I'd said that I would do this, and I think I forgot last week, but I'll read you an Acts commentary from the past seven days. There I picked uh, Tuesdays, Perfect. Tuesday, September 12th. Um, uh, now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. This is Paul, um, just after he had jumped down on top of Eutychus, embraced him, and uh, Eutychus was alive. Uh, Luke uses a string of singular participles to connect the thoughts together. It more literally reads, and having gone up and having broken bread and having tasted, also at length having talked until daylight, so he departed. In the previous verse, Paul had gone down and embraced the dead Eutychus and then acknowledged that his life was in him. Now, with that behind them, it next says, and having gone up. As noted, the verbs are singular. Everything focuses on the actions of Paul. Eutychus was restored to life. With that out of the way, Paul returned to the upper room. Immediately, Luke next notes, and having broken, having broken bread, some manuscripts include an article, and having broken the bread. It is probable that this is referring to the Lord's Supper, or it could be the agape feast that accompanied it. The idea of breaking bread is that of a single loaf, or loaves if a lot of people are present, which is passed around as pieces are broken off for each. With that stated, Luke next says, and having tasted. Not only did Paul break off the bread for others, but he also had a taste of it himself. The word giomai signifies to taste. It is the experiential part of eating or some other event. Jesus said in Matthew 16, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Likewise, it says this in 2 Peter 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Such ex examples show that Luke is focusing on the experience rather than the idea of filling one's stomach. The probable reason for these words is because of what Paul would have said in the rite of the Lord's Supper, which we say every Sunday, for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. In other words, Eutychus had just tasted death. But because of Christ Jesus' death, the restoration of his life was made possible. Therefore, the taking of the Lord's Supper would have taken on a much more poignant taste during this meal. They were proclaiming his death until he comes. Luke is quickly connecting the thoughts together to show an unbroken succession of events, all bearing on what just occurred. Now he continues with, also at length having talked until daylight. The word for talked is not the same as verse 9 where it said discoursing. Instead, it indicates a conversation. This verse shows the man, the man Paul as one who devoted every moment of his time to the people he was with right up until the moment he had to depart. He was a tireless, selfless individual concerning the gospel and the fellowship. With the coming of daylight, it was necessary for him to go his way, and so he departed. Verse 20:13 will show that Paul departed on foot to Assos. This is after not sleeping a wink all night long. Meanwhile, the others would sail there and meet up with him. The reason for this goes unstated, but after an entire night without any sleep to sustain him, he left Troas and began walking to Assos, a distance of about 21 miles as the crow flies. Taking the Roman road was a distance of about 31 miles. Thus, he would have taken at least two days to make the trip. Life application, Lucas tied bringing back to life of Eutychus in with the subsequent breaking of bread. It is his way of connecting the life found in Christ Jesus to that of the life in his people. In this case, it was to teach us that even death cannot hold a believer in Christ. But more, it is to show a transition of the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles. In Acts 9, Peter was used to bring Tabitha, Dorcas, to life. But now has done the same, Paul has now done the same for Eutychus. The various events, signs, and miracles accomplished by Peter for the Jews are also occurring through, the, uh, through Paul for the Gentiles. For both, we now have the written word that verifies these things took place. This is to assure us that the life that is found in Jesus is still available to us now. We may not have a miracle of the restoration of life after a calamity, but we can have the absolute assurance that we will be raised at the coming of the Lord, just as the Bible describes in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Let us hold fast to this truth as we experience our own times of loss. We are asked to trust the Lord and have faith that what his word presents is true and reliable. Lord God, because of the death of Jesus, we can now have eternal life in Jesus. For those who have believed the gospel, it belongs to us by guarantee. Even if our mortal bodies die, we know that we shall rise again. The promise is sure, the matter is settled, and we shall rise again. Thank you, O God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray for this class, and we pray for anybody that has a difficult time out there today. Uh, Linda with her back or anybody else that is not doing so well and uh, is going through whether emotional or mental or physical or financial troubles or whatever other griefs they may be facing, we lift them up to you, Lord. And we also lift up this class that it would be handled properly. 2 Thessalonians is a wonderful book and we hope that we will honor you with how we go through it. And we pray you, praise you and glorify you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Okay, so that came from the Daily X commentary. Get posts posted once a day to the Superior Word website. If you just absolutely have to uh, uh, study the book of Acts and you want to start, you better start now because we're in chapter 20 and it's about 1,700 pages of uh, notes so far. So you got a lot of reading to catch up to tonight before you get to tomorrow morning's commentary. Okay, but or click on writing. Yeah, click on writing and then right there it says daily writing. Just go in there and it'll take you right to it and you can follow along from X20. But if you're really, really willing to get out there and do it, I would suggest that you uh, uh, just read all 1,700 pages tonight and start with the fresh with us tomorrow. Um, from last week's class, I uh, said something and I couldn't find it and Rhoda walked up after the class and um, uh, I had said that uh, God had blessed Noah and his sons and that's why he did not curse Ham, he cursed Canaan. And you know, I didn't want to read the whole chapter just to find it. There it is in Genesis 9 verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons. So uh, you're not going to curse somebody that God has already blessed is the point that I made and I'm glad that she gave that to me. And then uh, something else we were talking about was the book of Galatians. And um, I said there was something unusual about the book of Galatians and I couldn't remember what it was. Uh, immediately I got home and my friend Bob had sent me the information from the Galatians commentary. Along with not naming the brothers with him, which is something he almost always does, another note of censure can be inferred. Paul normally opens his letters with a note of commendation and thanks for the faith of the believers, and he did not do that for the Galatians. I knew there was something, I couldn't remember what it was, thanking Rhoda and Bob for those. Um, and then uh, even the dysfunctional church at Corinth was given such a hearty note of approval. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, he notes those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Two verses later, he gives thanks concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. He does not do that at all for the Galatians. He just gets in there and tells them that they are completely diverting from sound doctrine. And uh, then my friend Trent, I'm always saying, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, read your Bible. And he said, you should uh, say this from now on out, fix your eyes on Jesus by reading your Bible. And I thought that was very insightful because that is how you fix your eyes on Jesus at this time. You read your Bible and you will get to know Jesus and you can fix your eyes on him by reading your Bible. So thank you for that trend. We are in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. And I'll just start from 1. And okay. There. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightfully so, rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Four, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the precautions and trials you are enduring. Okay, this one says, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you what endure. What did I say? Did I not say persecution? No, you said something like percolations oh, yeah, or something. Yeah, well, it was persecution. Uh, so. Yeah, it, 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 so, uh, okay, I, I thought that might be the case. You were having a, a Charlie Garrett moment of dyslexia or something. Something like 
it was like I, it was some weird word and uh, but precautions you said that's what, yeah. Yes, I do see where I might have. Yeah, it wasn't percolations. You yeah. you weren't thinking about coffee. You were thinking about being safe. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Paul had just noted the exceeding growth of faith among the believers, as well as their abounding love toward one another. Because of this, he encourages them by saying, "So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God." In this, he is not boasting in them as the object of boasting, but rather the subject of it. The actual object of such a boast is in the Lord, who is working among them and through them in their increased faith and love. This is what faith in Christ is intended to do. And so Paul and his companions use those in Thessalonica as examples of an effective church centered on the Lord uh, how it should interact with their God, meaning faith, and among one another, meaning love, of the previous verse. Paul then continues by explicitly noting their patience and faith, not percolations, not whatever, <laughs> their patience and faith. Precautions. Precautions and faith. And in the context of the New Testament, the idea of patience here is endurance. It is a steadfast attitude which is centered on the fact that God enables a person or a group to remain under whatever challenges or trials he has allowed them to face. Okay, This is coupled with their faith, which is confidence in God despite those challenges and trials. If you have these trials and you are uh, patient through them, it is because your faith is grounded and you are able to do that. If your faith isn't grounded, then how are you going to have patience in your troubles and tribulations? How are you going to do that? But if you have grounded faith, if you understand that the Lord is sovereign, that bad things can happen to you, but you belong to him and nothing can take you away from him. I've got an article coming up uh, in uh, the Prophecy Update on Sunday. Very short little article. Something happened in Pakistan. And this guy had faith. And he was able to endure, it was a very temporary persecution, but he was able to endure it because of his faith. And it's something that you may be challenged with someday, so I hope you'll pay attention during the Prophecy Update if you watch it and find out what this pastor was willing to do. Because you may have to do exactly what he did one of these days. It may not be that far off. Um, and uh, I, I will give you a hint without saying it that one of the girls that was shot at Columbine years ago was given the same opportunity, and she didn't take it. Okay, well, neither did this pastor. Such is certainly the case here, because he then specifically notes, oh, the persecutions, not the patience, it was the persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So, uh, per percolations, I like that word. That's kind of like, you're like, percolating so it's like a persecution a precaution there we go we're getting some good p words here today anyway persecutions and tribulations that you endure the persecutions are specific and targeted attacks against them it indicates anyone who was directly irritating them badgering them or even bringing troubles against them physically. Now, this is what Paul went through. He went through it constantly with this group of people and the other people that he was with. Wherever he went, he would have persecutions with these people. And not the people he was with, but the people that wanted him to not be talking to the people he was with were his own countrymen. 
the Jews. I mean, they, they just continuously drove him out of one town and he'd go immediately to another. And the first thing he'd do was go to the synagogue. It was like they didn't work out. Maybe these people will listen. He, he was just adamant that I am going to talk to my people. And if they don't want to listen, then I'll go to the Gentiles. But I am going to talk to these people and try to make sense with them. You know, this past week, Actually, I think it was yesterday, somebody sent me a video. It was linked on Twitter, and it had two ladies that were in Israel. I don't know who they were or whatever, but they were standing there. One of them had a little microphone on her face, and they, went, they were standing in an open area, and they were talking about Jesus. And these Hasidic Jews, they were just like Antifa. They were pulling on them, pushing them, trying to tear off their clothes. It was unbelievable that these two ladies, they kept their calm. They were very, very mild. But these, and the little kids, they have their little kids trained to hate Christians. And they're saying this, what is the word they use, Jesus? It's not Yeshua, the yesh or something. Yesh. It's, it's, you know, like, anyway, it's just a very bad word uh, that they indicate that Jesus is, you know, to them nothing and uh, they just it was just terrible to see this and these two ladies were just trying their best to just be calm and uh, finally they were like just go away just go away and so they started leaving and what happens the people are coming after them and finally she turned around and she said you asked us to go away we're going now you can leave us alone and finally the light went on Duh! and off they went but you know there was no no belligerence on their part it, nothing. They were just trying to be civil about telling people about Jesus, and these people were all over them. It was unreal. So um, uh, they were going through basically the same thing that Paul went through. I want to tell my people about Jesus. He's a Pharisee. I mean, the guy was well-trained. He goes into a synagogue. They invite him to speak. They allow him to speak, and the next thing they do is take him out, and they want to stone him to death, okay? Paul understood, so when he's writing these things, he's not writing out of some dubious context where there's no relevance to his own existence. It is exactly what his existence was holding on to, okay? And they saw this. They knew this, so when he's writing it to them, they know that he is telling them the truth. He's just reminding of it because they need to know these things for the future. It's just like what's happening in Acts 20. I'm right down at the last three verses right now of the commentary in Acts 20, which, so I'm about 18 days ahead. But he is in Miletus. He went around to Ephesus so that he wouldn't have to stop in Ephesus and be delayed because he wants to get Jerusalem. It was quicker for him to do this and to call people to go all the way to Ephesus and have them come all the way back to Miletus, which would have been at least two full days. Then it would have to go to Ephesus, and he knows he would have never left there. They wouldn't have let him go. But he, the entire time that he's talking to these people in Miletus, he is exhorting them. He is telling them, use this example, and he's talking about himself to them. And they couldn't say, well, that's not true, because it happened. And he's doing the same thing here. He's taking something that they commonly understand, and he is relaying it to them. So when we read these words... It's not just something, there's a guy sitting in a chair somewhere, and he's writing, you know, you might have persecutions in Christ. And so, and we read it this way, because we're just reading the Bible. We're not thinking that it's actually active in our lives. Uh, that's happening over there. I don't need to worry about that. That's not how Paul looks at it. Paul looks at it, this happened to me, it happened to you, and now I'm writing it to you, and this 
has become the word of God so that all of us are involved in what is being said because we may have to face this, okay? If you go up to uh, some public square in the future and you start talking about Jesus, which is your right in America, as long as you're not, you know, of uh, amplifying your voice unless you have a uh, allowance to do so, you can speak about Jesus anywhere you want in this nation. But you can have exactly what happened to those two ladies in Israel happen to you. And if you do it in some areas, the cops are not going to stop them. They're going to let those thugs persecute you openly because they are on those thugs' side, okay? That's just the way it is in some parts of this nation now. I don't know how we've gotten to this point, but that is where we're at. So if you are willing to speak about Jesus, you may have this happen to you. And, you know, all we need to do is have an election. The governor will change in Florida. The entire you know, uh, dynamic of the of Florida, of the state, will suddenly start turning. That's how it happens. Read the book of Kings, Chronicles, and you'll see that when a new king comes in, whatever he does, the nation does. When you have a crummy governor, like the governor in New Mexico, and she does something, thank goodness the people are not doing that. But if she gets her way, if the courts don't stop her, the whole state will start turning in that direction. Okay, right now there's courts involved, and uh, but I don't know if you know, heard what happened with her, but she came out and she just suspended Second Amendment rights. Just suspended them. It's an emergency. Yeah, yeah Dick Tech. Yeah, she said it's a health emergency. Health has nothing to do with your Second Amendment. Zero. But she has done that, okay? Eventually that state, because it's already leaning liberal in all of the, the ways that it happens, the whole state will just be like California or Washington. And the only thing that will save it is the court system. And it won't be the court system down there. It'll be the court system that is higher, that still has some modicum of reason in their head. But this is the type of thing that you need to be prepared with because we're in a state that's free. And Paul is writing to somebody over there. He's writing to you maybe in another two years. You don't know. So be ready with these things. Understand that they're, I'll read it again now, the persecutions are specific and targeted texts against them or against you. It indicates anyone who is directly irritating them, badgering them, or bringing troubles against them physically. The tribulations are more general, and they are indicative of difficulties which hem someone in, even to the point where it seems there is no avenue of escape. You're, think of yourself being pressed into something and you can't get out. That's kind of what a tribulation is. All right, that would be more like somebody that's living in one of those states and they're just in it all the time. I've got a friend that lives in Portland and he emails me about every day and he is always telling me of how bad things are. That guy is living in tribulations. It's not just persecutions, which I've told you, he's got a shop and people will come in and spit on him and all that kind of stuff. That's a persecu persecution. But when he emails sometimes, you can tell he feels hemmed in. There's tribulation in his life because he is a lone voice of reason in a city that is just going absolutely crazy. They're, 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 they become full retards in that city. There's nothing left of their normal thinking brains. They're completely deviant in what they're uh, thinking. And this poor guy has to live in that type of tribulation. Okay, between the persecution and tribulations, others might simply get up and leave. 
feeling that the trouble outweighed the benefits. And I know that's how he is. He would love to be out of there. He'd love to be, but you know, you've got a business, you've got a house, you've got all those things. I'm sure he has to weigh every bit of that. But this is what's going on in the world, all right? But the hope of those in Thessalonica was steadfast. And so they endured through all that came their way. Their faith told them that they were to receive a kingdom which will not be shaken. And so they remained fixed on that and continued to serve God with reverence and fear. Okay, when the COVID lockdowns came and people were all fearful, I remember being in the projects and there were probably 12 of us and there, you know, everybody was like scared to hold hands or to pray next to each other. And, you know, I was like, we're not doing that. And Chris, she was like, I'm never wearing a mask down there. So, and I don't think any of us ever wore a mask in the projects. Everybody else is just like fearful. You drive down the road and people are like hiding behind bushes. And on Sunday morning, uh, let me read that again so you know the context. Um, uh, their faith told them that they will receive a kingdom which will not be shaken. And so they remain fixed on that and continue to serve God with reverence and fear. At the same time as the projects on Sunday morning, there was something called church. And while all the other churches were closed, that door was open, all right? We never closed, and if they wanted to come and arrest me, that would have been fine. And I told everybody here, if you don't wanna come, if you were scared of the coronavirus, stay home. But I have an online church, and they want to have something to do on Sunday morning. You can stay home and you can watch it online as well. I can be here alone and do that. Sergio can get the uh, video going and whatever he does, you know, with the, uh, the uh, you know, the technology. And then I can sit here. But I was surprised at how many people came week after week after week. And after just a couple weeks, it was almost full again. Only a few people didn't come. And that was because of they're older, they have bad health, and it could be lethal for them. And I have no problem with that. If it's the same thing with the flu or anything else. If you have a a time in your life where you are not going to make it through something like that, you might as well not come. That's fine. But I am not going to be shaken by something, especially like that. You know, it, 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 there's no point in that. You're going to die anyway. At some point, you're going to die. That's just how I look at it. It could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years from now. And it doesn't really bother me when it happens to me. I was having a conversation with one of my friends, I won't say who, but he's kind of in the back of the church today. Um, and we were talking about that just today, what we want our funerals to be like. And so I know what I want my funeral to be like, big party and you know, two words and that's it, okay? Give the gospel and then have a party. Praise but, Jesus are the two words, right? Yeah, well, praise Jesus, yeah, do that. And then, okay, time to party. But everybody's different, but I don't understand the need to be fearful in this world, okay? Like that pastor, when I read it, like I say, it's just a very short thing, but when I read that, he wasn't willing to yield an inch. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's it, well, whatever. Paul will explain the benefits of their steadfastness, the, the believers in Thessalonica, and he will explain what will come to those who had been persecuting them. In the end, their patience and endurance would be rewarded. They knew this, and Paul's words will come as both a reminder and a continued encouragement to them. Their words, which should be considered and applied to our own lives now, because until the Lord returns, there will always be persecutions and tribulations for the Lord's faithful. Always. 
You might not have them personally, but there will always be people in this world that are facing it. If you don't believe that, we've got the uh, the martyrs, uh, voice of the martyrs. We got it back there. We've got it in the kitchen. Uh, I gave the book, Burke read it. He said, it was good, wasn't it? Very powerful, what's going on in the world right now. And I handed it to somebody else. They took it and uh, uh, when they're done, they can bring it back and I'll give it to somebody else. It's a big, thick book. Our uh, uh, friend out in Spokane is the one that sends us the Voice of the Martyr stuff. And if you want to read, you want to be reminded where your faith should be, read those every month. They're very short. Take it home, read it, bring it back, let somebody else read it. But that's the Voice of the Martyrs. And they will tell you that this is going on in the world right now. Okay? Life application. As Paul's letters are prescriptive, that means he's prescribing things. They are prescriptive for the church age. It is important to understand that teachings of prosperity, health, wealth, and good times are misguided. If, and I have no idea what they preach in this type of a church. No idea. I'm just saying the name itself, I would not walk into a church called Abundant Life. I, they've got them in every city in America. Everywhere I go, I see Abundant Life, whatever church. And I think maybe they're teaching abundance in Christ, but that doesn't sound like it to me. When you put Abundant Life on your sign, it tells me that people are coming in hoping to have abundance of life. In other words, wealth and prosperity. So I wouldn't even go in there. But if I'm wrong and somebody attends, that here's this, an Abundant Life church that actually preaches the gospel and doesn't preach that you're gonna get wealthy or anything like that, send me an email and let me know and I will announce that. But just the name turns me off because when you think of abundant life, it, it just, it, it, it does something to me, I don't know. So you doing okay, Sergio? Okay, all right, he's not feeling, I told you, I told you. He's Mr. Adamant, have a good evening, take care of yourself. He's not feeling well, so keep him in prayer as well. Um, he, uh, I, I heard from him right after he read the Bible this morning and not again. And that is like, that never happens. I usually hear from like 8,000 times a day with annoying little messages. And when I say annoying, I mean, it's just something that we annoy each other, but it's all done in love. Okay. So, but he's not feeling well. So keep Sergio in prayer. Um, uh, yeah, they're prescriptive for the church age. So prosperity, health, wealth, good times, all that type of teaching is misguided. I would like to think that I'm wrong about that church. I've never watched a sermon from an Abundant Life church. I, it, maybe it's a, a denomination. I don't know, but I've seen them everywhere. And uh, There's one on Proctor. Isn't yes, there is. There's I, one on I Proctor. I think I went there for a little okay. bit after Grace. Okay. And, Was, did they preach prosperity or what? No, but they were um, very close to like Mennonites uh, in the fact that, you know, the women had their hair out. Oh, and, that's goofy. I don't Not know. all of them, but like, you know, anybody who's pastor and like they, their their wives were. Yeah. Huh. Thing. But there, okay. was, there was nothing about like, you know. Health and prosperity. Okay. So I just got a confirmation. You don't need to email me. But he said that they, at least at the Abundant Life that he went to for a couple of services, he said they weren't really teaching prosperity. And I like to hear that. I, I don't know what the term abundant life would be unless they just start every service with saying, in Christ, our life is abundant, and then start telling you that it doesn't mean in this world, okay? Yeah, well, that's right. It, it's speaking about Christ. It's not speaking about, it, but people will take that verse, and they'll take, it's like when they take the tithing verses, you know, Malachi chapter four, and uh, uh, test me in this. 
bring in your tithes and I'll open the windows of heaven and they give these grandiose sermons that have nothing to do with what the Bible is teaching. They take one verse or two verses completely out of context and they give you a sermon on why you will be wealthy if you give to that church. And so that's just what went through my mind with the name Abundant Life. But, you know, because they'll take a verse, one verse like that, and they'll just say, this is Jesus wants you to have life more abundantly. And that means you, you get a Porsche and you get, you, you know, all of these things. And so anyway, um, I wish they'd put a little subtitle under Abundant Life to explain what they mean. You know, you may get crucified, but there's something better waiting or something, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, okay. Uh, the true benefits of calling, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, they're misguided and at times they are shown to be ridiculous. People making claims about prosperity and health and wealth it's ridiculous. When uh, Kenneth Copeland tells you that you will be, or there is a great blessing for giving to his ministry, he's talking about himself. He is, uh, there is a great blessing if you give to this ministry. And then he goes out and he buys another Learjet. Yeah. I mean, he's already got one. He wants another one. He's got a like a 40,000 square foot house and everything is under the umbrella of the church. Everything. So he doesn't pay taxes on anything. He's got $80 million in the bank. Joel Olstein. Joel Olstein. I'm sure he's got the same setup. Yeah. They just, all that prosperity and... Uh, India, I, I don't know him. Anyway. Uh, well, I might, but uh, whatever. Uh, they're all, they're all if you're on TV, it takes a lot to keep a TV ministry going. It's very expensive. Okay. And there are very few that are doing it to get the word out. Most of them are doing it to, to succeed and to just grow their ministry more and more and more. There are a couple. There are some out there that are really properly directed, okay? I don't wanna say that just because you're on TV, it's bad, but uh, you know, it, the thing about it is the bigger your ministry is, the more it takes to keep your ministry going. Uh, uh, um, uh, Tom and Nancy, Tom, um, I, I'm trying to think of his name right now, and anyway, he comes down from Ohio, and we've had dinner with him. Uh, yeah, 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 anyway, he, uh, I don't wanna say his last name on the, the thing, though, but yeah, that's, anyway, um, uh, he's the one that typed that thing, and he called it the machine. You have a church, and you start expanding, and you start expanding, and you start expanding, and you just keep going, and it just keeps getting bigger, and it gets bigger, and eventually, it's just a machine that needs to keep feeding itself, and I, you know, there's nothing wrong with a big ministry. Don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not in any way slamming people that have big ministries, but there's a point where the ministry itself has to just keep a certain amount of money coming in or it's not going to be able to continue to feed itself. And that's not a good place to be. I remember R.C. Sproul. You know, I, I liked listening to him. I didn't agree with, well, 82% of his doctrine, but he always had very good insights into things. And But one of the problems he had is he had a ministry that got so big that he would say, and you'd hear him say every summer, summer is when people don't give a lot of money. We need this to keep this ministry going. He was frank about it, but, and then Christmas, he'd say, Christmas is a time when people don't give because, and we need a lot of money to keep this ministry going. And I thought, I never want to be in a position where I have to tell people, this machine needs to keep being fed for whatever reason. I, I just don't see that. So anyway, um, uh, whatever. Okay, there's nothing wrong with a big church. There's nothing wrong with expanding. I'm not trying to say that, but at the same time, there is something that needs to be said about 
a small entity, whether it's a home church or whether it's a little church in the mountain or whatever, that is proclaiming Christ, even if it's not growing and, you know, sending people out to Pakistan and everything, if the gospel is being preached, if he is properly training his people, um, there was a guy that I don't remember his name, but it was somebody I read during uh, one of the college courses, and his policy was, and I, I wish that I would do this, but I kind of do it, we have live Bible study, so this is a little different. Um, this guy would, every single year, he had, it wasn't a big congregation, he was a country preacher, but every single year he went to every one of the people in his congregation's house, and he would open up his book of the proper doctrines of the basis of the faith, and he would expound them to him, okay? And so they didn't just have church on Sunday morning. He, they would have every year a reminder of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine, and he would tell them these things. And But it's kind of the same thing here, I guess, because we have Bible studies that are open. Everything is recorded. You can go back. If somebody says, well, what was, you know, I, a Jehovah's Witness came by and I'm confused about this. It's already recorded. So there's not really a need for me to go directly to people's houses, but at the same time, I just think that guy was, he was very, very conscientious about making sure that the flock that was under him, that he made sure that their questions were answered. Uh, I, hats off to him, I think of him a lot, and, uh, but I try to answer every email that comes in. If somebody has a Bible question, I try to always answer that question. Um, I got a couple people that like to uh, ask me questions directly, and I don't really like that as much, and the reason why is because I want to be able to think things through, and I don't want to say something that is incorrect on something that was asked, like last week with Galatians, right? I, I know there's something in Galatians, but I can't give them the answer, and I would rather be able to say, and that's why I repeated that, I read that today, is because I don't want any uh, strings not properly aligned in your, your garment, so I I printed that off as soon as I got it from Rhoda and Bob, and I made sure that we presented that today. I don't want anything that I think to be wrong, okay? But um, hats off to that guy who did that with his congregation. He was very conscientious. He probably got a free meal out of it, though, so that's good, you know, whatever. But um, Makes okay. it all worthwhile. All worthwhile, yeah. Okay, let's see here. Um, uh, the Prosperity. true benefit. Yeah, pro oh, yeah. The true benefits of calling on Christ are set for a future date. Not necessarily right now, a future date. Any times of blessing in this life are to be accepted with thanks, but are not expected as if we are entitled to them. Uh, we live on the south end of Siesta Key. We've been out there for 75 years as a family, not me personally. Okay, and this has been one of the driest summers that we have had on South Siesta Key. You go inland one and a half miles and they've gotten all the rain that they could ever want for a summer. It's rained, I'll email one of my friends up in, uh, um, where are they? I just had it in my head and it went right out of there. Um, um, Wesley Chapel, okay? And, oh, we're getting rain right now. And I'm like, ah. And this past week, not this week, but the past week, there were blobs of rain coming in from the Gulf. It was amazing watching these big red blobs out in the Gulf, and one of them finally was off of Siesta Key. And here's what it did. It got to Siesta Key, and it divided. And Stop, the really? north end of the key got absolutely hammered, and just south of, because we live where I live on the island is so narrow that there's not enough heat 
for it to build up any precipitation. And it literally, this giant blob divided. And I thought, well, I didn't get any rain today and I wasn't mad at the Lord, but when we got rain a couple hours later, how many times do we say thank you when we get, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. I just, I love when we get rain. It saves a lot of time because I have to water plants and you know, I don't have a lot of free time. So I spend an hour watering all these plants that'll die if I don't do it. I'm always thankful when we get rain, but those are blessings we should be appreciative of never expecting, okay? And uh, yeah, wow, Sarasota just got gobs of rain and we got one little shower. It was enough to not have to go out that day, but thank you, thank you, Lord. Maybe you need to create a rainforest. A rainforest in our backyard. Yes, that would be a great plumbing. idea. Yes. Yeah, that would be. Uh, what he's talking about is uh, there are, uh, we had the water problem last week. The pipe, somebody broke it and nobody turned it off all night. It's one quarter of a turn, it'll go off. And so we're gonna have a, a water bill, probably $18 billion, that's fine. Um, it ran all night, full steam going out back. Um, and so um, I know what's gonna happen. Uh, oh, I was talking about the shower though. Anyway, um, they will give you a one-time write-off in Sarasota County. If you uh, have a broken pipe and you waste 30000 dollars uh, gallons and it's four hundred dollars they'll say well we'll write it off one time but the thing is next week you might break your pipe again and you weigh sixty thousand dollars and so you have to weigh it out do i have enough to pay this bill is it going to be that inconvenient or should i wait just in case okay and you know so i emailed him immediately and i said somebody purposely broke our backflow preventer I took a picture of it and I sent him the information. I know what they're going to say. They're going to say either pay the bill or take the one-time exemption. There are people on Siesta Key that are multi-multi-millionaires and they have rainforests in their homes. They, they pipe pipes up into the trees and they turn on the sprinklers and it's like living in a rainforest. They, I know this because I ran the water plant, 180,000 gallons of water a month is what they use. And they just write a check as four grand or whatever. They don't care. It, it means nothing to them. And they'll allow that type of thing to happen, but then tell you, you know, you, we'll see what they do with this, but it's just maddening to me that there are people that will waste 180,000 gas. That's like a hotel on steroids. Right, right. Whatever. Okay. I, I, I don't mean to complain, but it, that kind of stuff just drives me absolutely bonkers. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they could have. Okay, we're in verse 1, 5. Okay, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. It's close. Uh, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also Suffer instead of suffering, they put also suffer. Um, just a Byzantine, Alexandrian. Uh, Alexandrian Byzantine. Okay. That's the, the basis, the, yeah, yeah. the tradition, and then they've got their various texts. But mm -hmm. you can compare them. Uh, I've said this before, but really quickly, there are at the time that I was in college, there were 5,686 Greek manuscripts that would be considered reliable manuscripts. Okay, in other words, they're not a modern, you know whatever. So 5,686. And they've certainly found more since then. They find them in libraries in the UK. Somebody had a parchment and they just shoved it up there and they find it. So they're always finding more manuscripts. And then of course you've got the lectionaries, which are 
commentaries on the Old Testament from the first couple centuries of the church, and they have 14,000 lectionaries. Wow. And then from there, they can reconstruct the entire New Testament with, I think there's only three verses that they don't have a lectionary comment on. So you have the entire New Testament in these lectionaries. All right, and then you have um, uh, you have other ancient witnesses as well. So I, I can't remember the uh, third and fourth ones right now, but you've got all of this evidence, and so there are differences between the Alexandrian tradition and the Byzantine. But you can see how close they are. That's why we read these, and so we can see there are some differences. But if you wanted to know exactly what the Bible said, you would do what these people do. They sit down and they go through every text and they try to determine how do we know that this is an error and it is not the original. And they do that by comparing 5,686 Greek texts. And they do it by comparing the lectionaries. And this is a lot of work. But because there are people that are doing this, eventually they will say, we are 99.999237% certain that this is the original. Okay, it's going to take, you know, maybe with AI they can push a button and have it in 30 seconds, but it's a lot of work, and then in comes another manuscript, and they have that much more evidence to do this. But even the differences between here are so minimal, considering the huge body of literature that we call the New Testament. Whereas, you know, uh, you take Homer's Iliad, the, they have five copies, partial copies, and they were written 800 years after the Iliad or some crazy thing like that. I mean, and they teach that in school like it's, it's this is it, right? And, but the same people that teach that and say, this is Homer's Iliad, and we know that this is the story from Homer, will deny that we have a reliable New Testament. It's the most hypocritical thing on the planet that they do. So, uh, you know, the Gallic Wars of Caesar, same thing. I mean, they got a couple copies of it. They're from 900 years later or something. It's some huge difference. And somebody just sat down and wrote the Gallic Wars of Caesar, and they say, this is, this is you know, a story, and they teach it in college. But they won't teach this. It's, it's such a hypocritical thing. It is absolutely hypocritical. And my numbers are not correct there. I just made up most of those on Homer and the Gallic Wars, just so you get an example. Okay, but there's very little uh, textual evidence for either of them, and it's very late dated textual evidence, okay, uh, and incomplete at that. So, what we're dealing with here is the most reliable written text, meaning the Holy Bible, in all of antiquity, and not by a little bit, by a huge, by an abundant amount, okay. There's no need to wonder if we have the Word of God or not, just because there's a couple differences in one tradition over another. We have the Word of God. Okay, 1-5. Oh, you already did. Okay, so now I'm going to evaluate 1-5. The words, which is, are inserted, okay? In the original, the words make a sharper statement, um, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Okay, I don't know. uh, That was probably Young's literal translation. I didn't cite the source, but that's what the original would say. Uh, The manifest evidence which is being referred to is debated. It is, is it speaking of the patience and faith of those in the church or is it speaking of the persecutions and tribulations 
that those in Thessalonica face. It's probably speaking of the entire clause, both their patience and faith and their persecutions and tribulations. Thus, what Paul means is that God's judgment on those who persecuted them would be deemed as completely fair. God can judge them. They persecuted you. God will judge them, and it's going to be perfectly fair, uh, fair because of that. We know that God will never do anything unrighteous, but those people will not be able to say, but, when they stand before the Lord. It's not going to happen. They had unjustly persecuted the church. Think of the people in Pakistan. Think of the people in Vietnam. Think of the people in Israel, that video. They're taking these two ladies that are just simply trying to tell them what they believe. And they're, they're literally tearing at them. It was, it was terrible to watch that. That's what they do. Like I said, it's exactly what you see. Somebody will go out into Oregon. He'll have his Bible. And I've seen this on video I, just a couple months ago. He's out there and he's just doing a street preaching. He's not bothering anybody. He's not harming anybody. He's just saying, I want to tell you about the way to salvation. And these people come up and violently attack him. They grabbed the Bible from him, start tearing out the pages. One of them grabbed the Bible out of the other one's hand, went into the porta potty and threw it in there, right? Th these people are vile and they will not be able to say, I was right. They will be, God will be vindicated. The gospel will be vindicated. And these people that are giving the gospel will be vindicated. And those people that are doing these things will not be able to say a word against it. God will judge them perfectly fairly for their actions. They had unjustly persecuted the church and God will look on their lives, including their persecutions of the church, and he will be fully just in their condemnation. Now, we don't want that. You know, it would be better for those people to come to the Lord, to be saved by Jesus. The people, the, those in Israel that are persecuting those ladies, the Antifa people up there that were stomping on the Bible and spitting on it and then throw it into the porta potty, okay? We want them to come to Jesus. We want them to know the salvation that God has offered in the giving of his sons. But that is probably not going to happen. It hasn't happened for 2,000 years, and it's, you know, very infrequently there are revivals and people realize I'm doing the wrong thing and they make a change. But it does come about from time to time. The chances of it happening now are, it, they're getting smaller every day simply because of the world, the environment in which we're living, the hate that's out there on social media, the news that's out there, which is so partisan that unless you look at one news side or the other, you will never know what the other people are saying. You'll never know the truth. They just simply look at their partisan news and they hate and they hate and it just wells up in them. And the right is just as guilty as the left on that. Unless you are willing to check everything very carefully, you're going to be in the exact same position with your thinking and your ideology about how the world is running right now. Because there are all kinds of crazy right-wing websites out there as well. And people without discernment will just sit there and read them and believe them. You have to say, is this rational? Is this reliable? How can I know it's not? Or how can I know it is? And sometimes it's not that easy. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, so God will be fully just in their condemnation. And yet, at the same time, their patience and faith is also manifest evidence of God's righteous judgment on the persecutor's sin. Think of those two ladies that did not bite back at those people. They just were very kind and these little kids tearing at them and the, the people coming up and, you know, whacking them with stuff or whatever they were doing. 
Anyway, and they were just very patient. They demonstrated their faith. They weren't willing to uh, uh, come against them. You know, it, it, I, I could not have done that. No. I could not have stood there and taken what they took. I wouldn't have done it. Okay, I would have got myself thrown in jail for what I would have done to one of them because mom knows I've got a little bit of an A-type personality and I get a little hot at times. Hidako's never seen that personally, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I admit I should not be in a situation like that because if I get myself into it, I'm going to just make things worse. Okay, there are certain things that you can do, certain things that you can't do. And as Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> And I know my limitations. I know where I shouldn't be, and I won't go there. Okay, the man's yeah, make my day. No, man's got to know his limitations. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, their patience and faith was also manifest. The patience and faith looks back to the cross on behalf of believers. The persecutions and tribulations looks forward to final judgment on the offenders. Thus, the words that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God are not words of merit for salvation, but words of merit of salvation. Everybody got that when somebody says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. It's not that you have to go and prove to yourself to be worthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you've called on Jesus, he has made you worthy. You are making yourself worthy of the position that you already are in by your faith and, and patience or understanding that you shouldn't be in a position like that, whatever. Um, so words of merit of salvation. The form of the verb, which is translated as that you may be counted worthy, signifies to the end that. There is an end purpose in their faith, and there is an end purpose in their suffering. We demonstrate faith in Christ, and we endure in our faith with an end purpose, which is the salvation of our souls, Paul's words. The verse neither speaks of works for meriting salvation, nor does it give the possibility of losing one's salvation, which is what people do all the time. They look at the English and they say, oh, that proves you can lose your salvation or you need to do something in order to be saved. Paul is speaking, he is simply stating that what has occurred and what is occurring has an end purpose in the redemptive process. This end purpose is being counted worthy of the kingdom of God. In these words, there's the sense that because of suffering, one can pre predict the fair verdict of God worthy. It is not a question of merit, but of standing. We are in Christ, he suffered, and our actions show that we understand this. It is for this reason that Paul then says, for which you also suffer. This harkens back to the words of John 16, verse 33. Now, you've got to understand who uh, Jesus is speaking to, but it's still, the words still uh, uh, bear the same thought. John 16, 33. Yeah, that's, I'm sure that's the one. I want to make sure, and I think you've got it already, but uh, John 16, 33 says... Um, uh, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. And as Burke said, in the, this world, in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Okay, we're not looking for merit 
in our salvation so that we can be saved or keep our salvation. We're looking for merit of our salvation. Am I living the life that God has given me? My salvation, am I worthy of that? Okay, so don't take that out of context and don't let anybody trick you and say, well, see, this proves that you have to do something in order to keep your salvation and you can lose it if that's not what that's speaking of. It's speaking of your state in salvation. Are you acting in a manner worthy of the Lord? Okay, it's not going to affect your salvation, but it will affect your relationship. It will affect your rewards and losses, and it'll affect your own personal walk if you have a conscience. If you don't, then you've got a problem anyway. So uh, you want to make sure that you are saying to yourself from time to time, am I doing something that is not worthy of the position that I've been given in Christ? Okay, that's just what we should do is evaluate ourselves. I uh, said, handy of a track. I'll watch your tracks. You know, how you're following the Lord. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll watch your tracks. Your yeah. track here doesn't mean as much as the track that you're walking. Exactly. exactly. Very well said. Very well said. Okay. Um, what Christ did for his people, what Jesus did on the cross, is fully sufficient to save his people. But this does not negate that his followers are exempt from what he faced. It actually presupposes it. This is why John 15, 18, he told his followers, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Paul is simply re-explaining these things to those in Thessalonica so that they can understand what has taken place, what is occurring, and what the outcome of those things will be. He's laying it all out there for them, but as I said, his words to Thessalonica are in this book because they are words that carry through all the way in the church age. They pertain to everybody. They may not pertain to you right now, but they pertain to you because you are a member of the church. And you may go to another country and have to face this. You may uh, move to another state. Your, your job calls you out to, you know, I won't even say where, but you get called out there and you say, well, I guess I'm going to go. And if you're going to act like a Christian, you might as well at least be prepared for what's coming because we live in a little bubble in Sarasota, Florida, I can tell you that. Um, but it's changing even in the school system because of these people that are, I don't know how you can be in a conservative area like this and be duped into electing a person that would do what that lady is doing right now. I, I just don't understand it, but you know, there's just not enough oxygen in some people's brains. I, I just don't get it. Anyway, um, this world is just yeast, okay? It's just fomenting. It's everywhere, it's just getting worse, and that's the way it's going to be. So hold on to your hats. I, it, uh, what is the saying on the, somebody sent me the shirt and it said, um, uh, things aren't going, uh, uh, things are not going to return to normal. But Jesus, uh, I, I don't want to miss it. I, whatever, it was very well said. Uh, Jesus is, uh, whatever. Yeah, it's something. It was very well done. I got the shirt somewhere at home. So uh, thank you, sir. That's very appreciated. Hope you have a great evening. Tell your beautiful wife we said hi. All right. Love you. All right. Bye. All right. Okay. So that's my son. That's right. Normal is not coming back. Jesus is. That's exactly right. That was it. Normal is not coming back. Jesus is. And that is exactly 
the way it is. We're never going to be back to where we were 10 years ago or even oh, four, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Okay, life application. If you are suffering for your commitment to Christ, it is not an indication of God's disapproval of you, which a lot of people will email me, and why is God doing this to me, and why am I going through all these t trials and troubles, and you know, am I doing something wrong, or why does God hate me? This is a fallen world. We all have different levels of trouble at one time or another in our life, and we can't just arbitrarily assign uh, our difficulties to God hating me or, or you know, God having it out for me. Like if you just look at the world around you and the people that have suffered, that's why I say reading the voice of the martyrs will help you to understand that you don't have it that bad. Your family might not like you very much and, you know, the job might be terrible or whatever. But, you know, I was, read, I was uh, doing uh, uh, research for the update and I was reading, I think it was Mail Online, and Johnny Depp, he's out there and he says, he's got this place in the Bahamas. And here's his snide little comment. He's down there and he says, everybody has to have their place to get away and to, you know, be themselves. And I thought, tell that to somebody that's living in Dhaka, India. Yeah. You know, you got 8 billion people jammed into the most disgusting, poverty-ridden place on the planet. Where are they going to go? What Bahama Island are they going to go to to get away from the misery they're living in? Yeah, we look at the world and we think, I've got this, and so this is the way it should be for everybody, and it's not. It, I don't understand how people can't look at the world and say, I've really got it good. I'm so blessed and I'm so thankful. I don't understand how we can't just simply acknowledge that before the Lord. You see people that are living, just watch a movie that's filmed like in, in Bombay or in, you know, one of these places that you go to and you might go to the one or two nice hotels in the entire city, but the rest of the city is just complete disaster. The people are living in absolute horrid poverty, okay? Uh, I could I bet tell you, you find some happy people in here. You find, yeah, you, well, you, less in the cities. The happy ones, the really happy people when I was overseas, were the ones that were they were very poor, but they lived like on a river outside of Bangkok. They weren't in the city. In the city, you know, there's a lot. From when you're this big, you're either going to be a, a prostitute or a pimp or something. I mean, they, they're just brought up in in terrible circumstances. But these people that live on a river, they don't have anything. Those children were the happiest kids I've ever seen. They're just, they don't know the cares of the world. They, they get up in the morning, they jump off of the house into the river. They live literally right on the river. And they're just happy and content. The parents don't have a lot, but they've got a little house and it's, it's you know, and we, I saw that when I would be in Asia. You get away from the cities and those are really happy. They're truly happy people, okay? Whereas you go into a Walmart and you got a lady and she's got three kids in their, their cart and they're all sniveling and crying and tearing at mom and I, you didn't buy any of that. And it's like their whole existence is based on more, more. And those little kids don't have more. They don't have anything. And they're just content with the, what God has given them, even if they don't know it's God that's given them. But in the cities, it is not really that way. When you're in the bigger cities, Bangkok, and, and the people are just, their lives are miserable. I, I can't even imagine that. And for Johnny Depp to not even understand that there are people like that in the planet.
it, everybody's got to have their place to get away. Like today, you're going to fly down to the Bahamas because you're mad at her, right? It's just not realistic. They're living in this this fantasy land in their heads. Anyway, um, if you're suffering for your commitment to Christ, it is not an indication of God's disapproval of you. Okay, that's something that you need to process. You need to consider that. You need to understand that. You may be having a bad life. There are people that are born, remember the thalidomide babies? The little arms sticking out, and that's all they had. You know, those people have really difficult lives, right? I mean, whatever your situation is, it's probably not as bad as the next person you're going to meet on the road, okay? Especially if they don't know Jesus. So be happy, be content with what you have. There, more is never going to satisfy, ever. It doesn't matter how much more you add to your life. I'm going to go buy more paintings for my wall. I'm going to go build another addition on my house. I'm going to get another car. Hey, every time you do that, you're replacing your happiness with a thing that can be destroyed, that can be burned, that can be stolen. And then there goes your happiness because somebody stole your car. Okay, more will never, ever, ever satisfy unless it's more of Jesus. Unless you have more of Jesus, it doesn't matter what you add to your life. I'm going to paint the front door another color. Well, that's good. You know, he keeps the front door from uh, rotting. I need to paint that side door, by the way. It's, you know, the wood is starting. The dogs are always scratching at it to get in the house. And so uh, it, the rain will get, it's going to ruin it. So I need to do that. But, you know, if you're just trying more, I need to, you know, like paint this so that I'll have a better life. There's no need to have more. Believe me. Trust me on this. I've lived in some of the poorest places on this planet, okay? And more is not going to satisfy you. It will not, okay? Be As, happy when you're painting it, though. Well, yeah, I'll be happy because then I, I won't have to replace the door because it hasn't rot. <laughs> when you live in Florida, things rot really quickly if there's not paint on them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, it, it, we just have to be appreciative for what we have and not to look at the world as something that is just for us to use. I'm reading a book about a girl who escaped from North Korea. They've gone back and forth between North Korea, China, trying to escape. Oh, yes. And, you know, I mean, so many times throughout the years, I thought, thank you, Jesus, that I was born here. Yeah, we don't have to go through what those people went through. No food, no nothing. Absolutely. Well, just a lot of heart. Lot of Absolutely. What she's saying, because they there can't hear you online. Yeah, percolations. There you go. What she's saying is that she read a story about a lady that had escaped from uh, North, North Korea. Korea, and she was just going like between China and North Korea and South Korea, just trying to get away in the, the extreme conditions that she was going through. And that is, you know, those people really suffer. You know, Christians in North Korea, if they don't follow exactly the church that they are allowed to follow, if they deviate in any way, it means a bullet in their head. There's no worshiping Jesus instead of Kim Jong Un. There's none of that. Okay. Oh yeah. Always, your people are. It's just like being in East Berlin. Okay, and your neighbors telling on you. They get points for handing people in. I, it, we don't live in that right now. We're getting there, but we don't live in that now. We've got it very good. And if you're facing that, you, you, I said this a couple classes ago, and I don't know if you heard this. This might have been six months ago, but um, there was one of the ladies went to, uh, I think it was uh, 
begins with B. It's over in, not Bulgaria, maybe, you know, one of those poor Mid-Eastern countries, uh, mid, uh, what do you call them, Eastern European countries. And uh, she said to one of the ladies that she was ministering to, she said, you must have it so hard here. Your faith must be challenged every day. And she said, no, we pray for you. We know what we cling to. You have everything Belarus. else to cling to. What's that? Belarus. Yeah, Belarus, maybe. It was one of those countries over there. And she said, we know what we cling to, but you have everything to distract you from it. Right? And that's what happens. We replace Jesus with all of this nonsense in our lives, and that will never satisfy. Paul says, with food and clothing, with that I will be content. And I know that's a misquote, but that's basically what he said. Everything else is just, thank you, Lord. When you get up and you have a full stomach, thank you, Lord, because most of the world does not face those type of things. Okay, so um, if you are in Christ, you are beloved of the Father, and he is allowing troubles into your life for various reasons, which all have a sound purpose. He is proven just in his condemnation of those who persecute you, and his salvation of you because of what Christ did is revealed in your own suffering. Be of good cheer. God's plan for you is perfect, even if it includes suffering. You want a perfect example of that? Just go type in Johnny Erickson Tata and read about her life story. It's spelled E-A-R, uh, Eric, E-A-R-K-S-O-N. Just start typing it and Google will pick it up for you. Johnny Erickson, E-A-R something, and then last name is T-A-D-A, Tata. Okay, type that in and read about her. Then you want to know somebody that has suffered and doesn't moan about it all day long. That lady has brought lots and lots of people to Christ because of her faithful patience in suffering. Okay, one six. What? J-O-N-I, yeah, Johnny, Johnny, that's right, J-O-N-I Erickson Tata. And just read about what she went through since she was, I think, 17, and what a difficult life she has lived. And yet she just, she doesn't need more and more and more. She just I'm is. I'm trying to find that very thing in Proverbs. She said these things are never say enough. Oh, yeah, that's, I think it's Ecclesiastes. Oh, yeah, Proverbs. Um, these things never say enough. A woman that is uh, blah, a uh, fire is one of them. Uh, the water that drinks up the ground or the ground that drinks up the water is never enough, okay? I, I was thinking of that verse, and I was wondering what you were looking for over there, but that verse was going through my mind, and I knew I wouldn't be able to find it. But these four things never say enough. Yeah. And one, fire. It doesn't matter how much you add to fire, it will never be satisfied. Eventually, it will die because it can't be satisfied anymore, all right? The ground continuously drinks up water, and yet it's never satisfied, right? And a woman, uh, uh, a wayward woman, is it? I think it's a woman without a child, but oh, I'm not sure. I don't think it's a woman without a child, but maybe it is. Anyway, I, I don't think so. drop it right now just yeah. to... Yeah, because you never know. Yeah, you, you never know. Until you find the verse, and God can be blamed for whatever comes out next. It's like, yeah, well, he uh, it, it, it's a great set of verses that enough, enough. And, you know, it, but in Ecclesiastes, he does talk about, you know, uh, being content, you know, and your eyes are roaming. And uh, anyway, we need, to, we need to focus on Jesus. And when we do that, all of the things of this world just don't have the same importance. They just don't. But as long as you are thinking, I need more to satisfy me, you're never going to find yourself happy, ever. 
it will not happen. You're going to be just as miserable tomorrow and the next day as you are today. Okay. You need to just say what God has given me, where I am. I say it every week because I really mean it. God has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. This is the life that you are living right now. Okay. If you try to go out and and I'm not talking about improving yourself. I'm not talking about applying for better jobs and things like that. Those are normal human things that we do. But there are people that have billions of dollars that live very, very mild lives and they go to church. Okay. They are content. All right. They don't, they're, they're not ostentatious with what they have. Okay. I know somebody that knows somebody that is a billionaire. Then he's just a regular guy. You would never know it. Okay. There are people out there like that because they have learned that that is not what will make anybody happy. Okay. So, um, uh, one six, one six. God is just, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This one says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation, those who trouble you. Okay. So he's making it a, a statement of fact, but Paul's words here are actually given in a hypothetical sense. The Greek reads, if so be that it is a righteous thing. However, the words leave nothing uncertain and there is nothing conditional in them. Rather, it is a simple tool that Paul uses from time to time to order, I'm sorry, in order to argue a fact that will be recognized as true by his readers. He will use an if when he means such is the case, all right? Then we do that too, you know, if I, but we don't really mean if, we mean this is the way it is, we just use that type of terminology. Paul does that occasionally in his epistles, okay? So, it's a simple tool for Paul, he uses it from time to time to argue a fact that will be recognized as true. Thus, the English does carry the correct sense, at least in this uh, translation. Jim's was a bit different. It is a righteous thing with God to repay. He makes it a uh, if, but it is a certainty, okay? A, it is a righteous thing with God to repay. If the word stopped there, one might think that every type of tribulation and suffering would be recompensed by God. Oh yeah, well I had some suffering, it had nothing to do with anybody else, and it's gonna be recompensed, all right? But God is also at times the initiator of tribulation. He is perfectly just in his decisions, and when afflictions come from him, they are a part of what is ordained from his eternal mind for various reasons, and to meet his ultimate end. However, there is repayment from God, which Paul speaks of here, which is based on the suffering of his saints. Thus, he says that God will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It is coming. It may not come in this life, but they are going to get it. The affliction of his redeemed people may appear to go unpunished, but it never will be. That's Job speaks about this. You know, the guy that does wicked and he dies old and in his bed and with his family around him. And why is this happening? You know, why do the righteous suffer? And God allows some very wicked people to die in peace and contentment. We see it all the time. You know, we see it in Washington all the time, especially. I mean, these people live long lives. They end up kicking off, and there's miles of people walking to see their casket. And they're honored in their death when they were disgusting in their life. Why does that God allow that? Why does he do it? But it does happen. 
God has his purposes. And the same is true with you suffering tribulation. And you, you know, it's probably not a true story, but the point is made. I heard it at the old Baptist church I was at years ago is that um, uh, they are returning a missionary and I guess his family, okay, and children. They're coming off of the boat and um, they've spent the parents are retiring. They've spent all their life overseas taking care of people. And they, uh, they get off the boat and there's a band playing and there's all of this pomp and circumstance. And they said, we're being welcomed home. And all of a sudden, some person that's a completely wicked son of a gun is brought in front of the band and they're honoring him after a short trip to Europe or something. And the father says, don't worry, son we'll have our reception someday. Okay, that's probably not a true story, but you get the point there. There's that we're in a world, these people suffered, you know, all kinds of troubles overseas. They gave up their lives for something and nobody's there to honor them. Nobody's there to say, what a great job you did. Okay, I know missionaries that have come back and uh, they their home church, this is somebody that you and I know personally, okay? Their home church, when this person came back after, I think it was three full years of being overseas, three years of being overseas, and their home church said, we would like you to talk to the church. And this person said, okay, what do you want me to say? Whatever you can say in three minutes. Three minutes. And this was not that person's home church, but uh, he or she, I don't want to embarrass him, but he or she said, uh, uh, you know, I, I like to talk to the church. And I said, okay, how long can I talk? And I said, as long as you want. You've been gone three years. You speak as long as you want. Okay. So uh, if you remind me after the class, I'll tell you who it is. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I, I don't understand that. And somebody's gone on a whole life and they're not being met by anybody, but someday we're going to be met by the King of Kings. Hey, that's, yeah. that's where... The joy is. Look at look at the hair standing up all over. I just can't wait for that day when we get welcomed home by the Lord. The one that died for us, that did everything for us, and we failed him every day after meeting him, and he's still going to welcome us home. I can't wait for that day. I just absolutely, what is there in this life that is making us want to stay here? <laughs> Not for me, I got to tell you. Okay, um, God is perfectly just in his decisions. And when afflictions come from him, they are a part of what is ordained from his eternal mind for various reasons and to meet his ultimate end. However, there is repayment from God, which Paul speaks of here, which is based on the suffering of his saints. I know I read this. I'm just getting back into the flow of it. Thus, he says that God will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. The affliction of his redeemed people may go unpunished or may appear to be unpunished, but it never will be. God in due time will repay all such things and he will do so with tribulation which comes from him. All of this is given as a support for the words of the previous verses. God is wholly just and he will dispense judgment based on his perfect nature. Not maybe, every single infraction will be judged. Albert Barnes gives four logical reasons for Paul's words here now. These are his words, not mine. One, it is inconceivable that God should threaten such punishment unless it was just. Two, people themselves believe 
that it is just that the wicked should be punished. We see it all the time in our own society. Antifa member has his mother killed, and I guarantee you that dirtbag is going to be in court saying, that person killed my mother, and I want justice. If he knows that, and he's already been out persecuting other people, we know that there must be justice for our actions. Three, if it is right to punish wickedness here, it is not wrong to punish it in a future world. This is the claim that everybody makes against God. How can God send people to hell? You hear it all the time. I don't believe in a God that will send people to hell. They don't understand anything. They haven't thought through the most basic thing in their lives. The most basic thing. Four. Four. Or they've been talking to a predestined. Yeah, maybe. Four. It will be a righteous thing for God to punish the wicked in a future state, for they are not always punished here as they deserve. Albert Barnes is correct, 100%. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says that punishment of those who cause the Lord's redeemed trouble will come. And so we know it will be as he has said. It's in God's word. If this is God's word, which it is, it will come about. No ifs, ands, or buts. And just because somebody says, I don't believe in a God that is, will judge people, doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. What you believe is irrelevant if it doesn't coincide with Scripture and what we can deduce apart from Scripture. It doesn't matter what you think about God or about punishment or anything. All that matters is what is truth. Truth is what corresponds with reality. Wasn't that judgmental of that person to say that? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) They make value judgments and say, I can make a value judgment, but God can't. It's just unbelievable. That's exactly what's happening with those people. Okay, he is fully in control of all things. God, not that person. Of course. It would be wrong for him to say he would do this and then not do it. And it would be wrong for him to allow his people to suffer if their suffer was, suffering wasn't repaid on those who caused them to suffer. Okay, Jesus died for your sins. You have been justified in the presence of God. Somebody persecutes you who are in Christ. It would be unjust of God to not judge that person, to not punish that person, because it is like negating Christ's own suffering, because you are in Christ. It's not going to happen. People need to think the entire process through. This isn't anger. This isn't, all this is, is justice. Justice. We demand justice when something happens in our lives. Somebody steals our car, they get caught, they trashed our car. We want justice. It's a car. If we want justice over a piece of metal that's going to be in the dump in four years, or two years, or one year, if you have a son that drives poorly, whatever, if you want justice for that, how much more does God want justice for his people who are in Christ, who have accepted the punishment that was laid upon him? That's, there's nothing angry about this. Nothing. It is just simply the way things are. Therefore, because we serve the perfect, just, and righteous God, our sufferings will be repaid upon those who cause us to suffer. It will happen. So when you think, why is this happening to me? These people don't like me. Let it go. This life will end very soon. We're all going to end up in the box or at the rapture. That's all there is to it. Let it go. 
life application. The book of Romans says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I like that if it's possible part. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will, in fact, judge the evils rendered against us. Though it is not, I'm sorry, though it is difficult to not retaliate, it is for this reason that we are then admonished to tend to our enemies. Maybe we can convert them before their punishment comes, like those two ladies tried their very best to in Israel. This is what we are called to do. Lord, give us strength to so act. That is what we need to do. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to read about your just nature. We think life is unfair, and we know it is at times, and we think, where is justice in this? Justice lies ahead. Your word tells us it does. We know from simply thinking it through that it must be the case, and we're thankful that you are the God who will vindicate your people. Thank you for that assurance, and we would pray for those people that are persecuting your believers right now, that maybe their hearts will be changed, that maybe they will see the faithfulness of the Christians that are willing to endure their punishment and their their tribulations and their trials and to convert. We pray that, Lord, that they will be saved, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll back this thing up, and that's, that's that.